Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interviewed Dave McComb, the president and co-founder of Semantic Arts. I invited Dave on as part of the continuing deep dive into domain-driven design for data and data-centric application development, as Dave literally wrote the book on data-centric application development. A link about that is in the show notes. Also, thanks to Dave and the team at Semantic Arts, the first three people that fill out a contact us on Semantic Arts's website and mentioned Data Mesh Radio will get a free copy of Dave's book. Uh, They're also having a conference in May. Please see the Data Mesh Learning Newsletter for a discount code for that. On to the interview. Dave's overall argument is that most businesses really have very few business events, maybe 500 to 2,000 for even the largest of companies. That kind of lines up with what I've heard so far in my domain-driven design for data investigation, so I don't think that's too outlandish. Those large enterprises, though, may have 10,000-plus applications, each with their own data model and application model, leading to possibly 100 million-plus data attributes. All that leads to far more complexity than is necessary if companies just focused on building applications from the business events side in Dave's view. I think it's not quite as easily summed up that way, but I need to dig deeper to really have a stronger opinion here. We discussed the amount of work an application developer would need to learn to be able to do data-centric application development. While it is mostly about learning data modeling, especially for graph databases, Dave has seen the application developers really push back and and not want to move to the the data-centric view. This has meant a slower rollout at at some of Dave's clients compared to if they were embracing this. I know this might sound similar to a lot of organizations around data mesh, but Hopefully, I think we're starting to find good ways to bring those application developers along with rather than just kind of throw additional responsibilities on them without giving them the resources and the help to really get there and and the buy-in. So getting people on board and excited is obviously a challenge, but we've had some guests that have talked about it, and I think we'll have a, a lot more in the future as well. I asked about the user experience, the UX, in data-centric application development, both for the data producer and data consumer. Kind of figured that the data producer UX was difficult at the moment, and Dave confirmed. Developers seem to love things that make them productive, and learning a new paradigm and then not having the tooling to implement those new learnings easily seems to be a repeated impediment to adoption, learning graph database modeling is hard enough as it is. When we compare that to data mesh, again, teaching people and giving them the data modeling tools, I'm not hearing that there's a lot of really easy data modeling tooling, especially when you start to think about the interoperability aspect and just making this pretty easy for domains to share their data in a way that's going to be um, useful, not just for 
learning about that domain, but about the, the larger organization. However, despite the, the quote unquote crude UX, Dave says he sees data consumers really loving consuming data from, from a graph in this data-centric application development kind of way. So there may be something again here about how do we make this easier to share data in this way. The overall goal of data-centric application development, as far as I understand it, is to provide simplicity and flexibility to organizations as most applications are too rigid for Dave and the system integration is even worse. Is data-centric application development the best way to approach data mesh? Time will tell, but I'm not really sold yet. More interviews on the topic, hopefully on the horizon, so I can learn more and really start to narrow in on what my thoughts are around it. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Super excited for this episode today. I've got Dave McComb here, who's the president and co-founder of Semantic Arts. And Dave is kind of the architect or the uh, kind of creator behind the concept of data-centric application development, data-centric architecture. And this is something that I had started to dig into for uh, a number of reasons, mostly because when I was having conversations with people they kept pointing to the same challenge, which is the application model has to evolve and the data model also has to evolve, but application model changes break your data model. And so how do we continue to work down this uh, concept of application model changing and not breaking all of the data consumption, not making data the second class citizen? So with that as kind of backdrop, Dave, if you don't mind, could you give a little bit of uh, background on yourself and kind of what drew you to start uh, really pushing for this data-centric uh, concept? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, I, I guess the, the this journey began kind of in the mid-80s. You know, object-oriented was just taking off and... and um, <clears throat> And our, observa- our, our observation was that, that modeling then, so object modeling really was data modeling in a way, was, and, and so was ER modeling, you know, was, was completely arbitrary. There, there were books written at the time that said, well, just read the requirements spec and underline the nouns and those are your objects. <laughs> and we said, no wonder, you know. 10 people write 10 inventory control systems and they're just 10 completely different things. You can't even integrate inventory with inventory, let alone inventory with, you know, purchasing and accounts payable and stuff. And, and we thought there has to be some principled way of, of, of bringing all this together, bringing the things that are literally the same, at least together. Um, and at that time, the, the, you know, back when you used to have to go to the library to do research because it wasn't a World Wide Web, um, there was only a handful of, of articles written on, on this. And, the, you know, they referred to semantics. So we started doing our own brand of semantic modeling. I, was, I, we, I just moved offices and, you know, I got a little bit nostalgic for some of these old teaching a class on semantics in 1991, I think, or something. Um, <clears throat> and we just sort of kept with it. That was sort of the underpinning of, of a lot of what we did through the whole dot-com boom and bust and all that. And then uh, after the bust, after our dot-com blew up on, in the spring of 2000, as everyone else's did, or most everyone, uh, we said, well, this, this semantic thing seems like it might have some legs. And that's when we started the company. And our mission from that point forward was you know, let's let's help 
enterprises actually understand what their data means as a basis to to you know better organize and simplify it and access it and all that kind of stuff. And and amazingly, right shortly after we started the company, the semantic web came out. You know Tim Berners Lee's vision, and we've been you know, pushing that and, and its implications, and it eventually led to what we now call uh, the data-centric approach. It's kind of a long outgrowth of that kind of thinking over a long period of time. And, and if you could define the data-centric approach, what would you kind of, somebody who's new to this concept, what, it sounds like it's just data at the center of everything? <laughs> so, sort of. Um, although the immediate image that comes to mind when you say data at the center is, is co-location of a lot of data, you know, data warehouse, <laughs> data lake, which is not what it is. In fact, that's been proven to not be necessary or to work very well. The, the, the core idea of data centric is, is what it's in contrast to. What currently exists, large enterprises have thousands to tens of thousands of applications. Every single one of them has a completely different and arbitrary data model. Most of them, e even the individual models, are usually an order of magnitude more complex than they need to be. Occasionally, two orders of magnitude more complex. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's frightening what, what, what we see sometimes. But anyway, take that and multiply it by thousands, and you have it's not unusual for a large enterprise to have hundreds of millions of data attributes under management which is just mind boggling the longer you think about it. And, and, but the secret truth that's just hiding there right in plain sight is that even complex companies run their business on about 500 to a thousand concepts. And when you can find, when you identify and find those concepts, that's kind of the, the North star. And you say, now I know they're all hiding in all these systems. All I have to do is map this, this single shared version of, of what this enterprise is really doing to where all the data lives and you have a, a, a simple way to get at it. And at one level, it's a lens. You know, if, if, if when you complete all the mapping, which is a lot of work, I mean, there's, but all, any, anything you do with, with data is a lot of work. So at least this is productive by the time you get done. At one level, it's a lens. You, you can from a very simple set of concepts, query into all the information your enterprise has. At the other level, though, you can you can uh, ingest data into the into the graph. I think I forgot to mention. We highly recommend. There's a handful of people who have implemented these data centric concepts in traditional systems, either either relational or JSON based. But it's in, it's much easier to do with a graph. But anyway, you can also ingest data into the graph uh, where, you know, just adding new functionality is relatively simple and, and gradually uh, wean yourself away from a lot of legacy systems. That's kind of the, that's kind of the long range thing, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because of how I, I put them together as a topic and I figured that this was somewhat similar, but of domain-driven design for data and mm -hmm. data-centric right. uh, as kind of one co-deep dive. And exactly what you talked about is pretty much event storming, right? It, it is going and saying that. And then, um, but yours goes further into um, changing the way that we actually implement the technology and that we, the actual implementation of creating the application and, and things like that. So one question that I've had around this is how much work is this one for the application developers to learn how to do? Two, are they the, the core of that? And, and three, you know, how much you have to really embrace this as an overall company and, and can you like update what you're doing from a, a legacy standpoint and 
do you have to change everything out to embrace this, right? And so it's kind of th- those three things yeah. embraced into one question, whichever one you want to go down. First. Yeah, there's a lot. I got to unpack a lot there. But um, let's, I mean, let's start with the application developers. Um, it's not a huge amount to learn, but almost all application developers are reluctant to learn it. <laughs> they, they seem to be a, just opposed to it. And at some point, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, die in the dark as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it, it, it requires you change the way you think. And most people don't want to change the way they think. That, that's what I saw from the NoSQL space as well. You know, uh, yep. having worked at Datastacks back in the early 2010s, uh, that there were a lot that didn't want to to change that. And so there are ones who really embrace it and go, okay, this is the future. And there are ones who don't. But if you if you're in an organization that has, you know, thousands of application developers and they're not wanting to do that, like what what have you found that actually does help them get to where they need to be? Right. It's not just you need to learn this. It's like right. what what do they need to to get there to so most of our clients are, you know, moving to this incrementally. That was part of one of your other questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to circle back on that in a minute. But, you know, most large companies are, of course, getting to this data centric idea incrementally. And in the interim, we've, we've managed to get some application developers. Well, they, they do, they end up doing two main things. There's a lot of data engineering. So they're doing things they already know how to do, the pipelines and the various ways of getting data from point A to point B, and they can still do that. And a few of them are building uh, native capabilities, native UIs directly on the graph database. Um, <clears throat> they typically, you know, want to keep using their, what what they already know, you know, their little you know, React these days. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with React, but it's the way they want to use it. They want it, they want to reach into the graph, treat everything like a table, turn it into a JSON blob, put it in my DOM and, you know, pretend like it was real structured data. And there are, there's better ways to do it, but at least they get something done and they, they have some satisfaction and, and some things go on, but um, there's, there, there's a better future out there, you know, where you, where you actually learn to program against triples, against the graph. And frankly, um, most, uh, most application functionality in the future is going to be model driven. So it's, we're not going to have a lot of need for, for application developers. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of no code, low code, but it's a different approach to it that, that, and we, you know, we discovered this in the nineties in our com. We had a patent on this. It totally works. If you, if you create a semantic model of what an application is, not a semantic model of the domain of the application, but literally a, a semantic model of what an application is, an application is, you know, a, a set of user interfaces and forms and fields and validations and transactions and triggers and, you know, all the things that we historically have coded. And you say, I could build a model of each of those and I can build an engine that runs the model. And once I do that, every application is just data. It's a description of the application that's interpreted at runtime. And many people think no code, low code is code generation. And some of it is code generation. This is not code generation. This is the model is the app. Hmm. So in the end game, uh, and, and, you know, Dan Demers has, has done this, you know, he, it, it, it's not impossible to do. It's just, it's just kind of hard. Well, and that's, that's the other question that kind of comes up of, of not just it, it, how hard is this, but does this affect the, um, the ability to deliver at the same pace and speed because that innovation pace and speed, while I I think it's overblown how much value there is in being able to uh, 
you know, make these kind of large scale ish changes to applications on a very, very regular basis, you do need to be able to deploy and, you know, CICD and all that stuff. But Mm -hmm. what does this do when you're thinking about the velocity of application development and, you know, initial development and changes? Mm -hmm. It's essentially uh, change at the speed of design. In other words, if if you have a fully model-driven environment and changing the model changes the app, you can just change it, you know, right before your eyes. Now, obviously, you should do some testing, but I I remember in the 90s, we were in the healthcare, we applied this stuff to the healthcare space, and we were at HIMSS, you know, that's the big healthcare information system, and we have our little booth, and we're demonstrating this, you know, we're showing how you can change an application right before your eyes. And there was two reactions to that. One, it just freaked people out. They thought, this is horrible. We don't want to, we don't want to change that fast. And the other was there was this one guy who kept telling us we that couldn't be done. And we'd show him something else and he'd go away for a while. And he, no, that that's impossible. This is by the way, for these reasons. And we'd show him something else and he'd go away for a while. And he'd come back. And after several hours of this, he finally came back literally yelling do you guys have any idea what you've done here? As if we didn't, you know, as if we just stumbled across this. Yeah, of course we have some idea what we've done. We designed it. I mean, God. Anyway, you get this one up here. Um, But going back to your earlier, part of your earlier question there, this this whole idea of adoption um, in all of our large clients, it's it's pretty incremental. You can, and we, we do take a domain at a time. So in some ways it is, a uh, little bit like data mesh in that regard, except we have a, we call it our think big, start small uh, approach where we already have the the enterprise ontology that's going to stitch all the pieces together before we do the first piece. But that this, this incrementalism, while it's good for a large organization, is going to take a long time for companies to truly become data centric. And what we've started more recently is we're going to go, part of our company is going to go down market, down to the mid market, where we can get firms who could completely switch over in the course of, say, a year um, and get them going and gradually walk this back up to large organizations as sort of existence proof where they look down and say, oh, well, if a thousand person organization can do this, maybe a 5,000 person organization can do this. And then the 10,000, you know, will say, well, if a 5,000 person organization, maybe we could do it, you know, until you, until you finally get back to the place where we started. Well, and that's, that's the, one of the things with data mesh is data mesh was designed for, you know, very large companies Mm -hmm. and people are looking at what data mesh is trying to do of, of marrying, um, the ability to be agile and scalable on the application side and be agile and scalable on the data side. And that, you know, um, historically that just hasn't been really possible. You you look at, and and that you're maximizing your context and things like that on the, um, the data that you share, you look at the, the traditional enterprise data warehouse, you're trying to fit it into this little box and you're chopping off all the context as you, you do it. So it fits into the cookie cutter and right. you know, you've, you've cut off 90% of the dough. Um, so <laughs> I guess if you, a startup were to think about doing this type of approach from day one, do you think that that makes more sense? Or do you think you have to be at a certain scale where this starts to, to really make sense or a certain number of domains or a certain number of like a certain amount of complexity where this could make sense from day one? Yeah. You know, I used to belong to this group called Vistage, which is a CEO roundtable kind of group where you just get together and solve each other's problems. At, you know, people in different industries, you're not with competitors. And I kept trying to explain to these guys, you know, these one guy sold, you know, magnesium chloride, that stuff you put on the road. So, you, you know, cars don't fly off and real estate develop, you know, people, not technologists at all. And I kept trying to explain to them what, what it was we did for a living. And finally, 
finally one of them figured it, figured it out, figured out the two part thing. He says, Oh, you know, you're in the business of untangling hairballs. <laughs> all these information systems of bigger companies are, are these giant hairballs of integration and crap and all this stuff. I said, yeah, yeah, I suppose. He says, well, for us, maybe, maybe you should have a hairball prevention service. So as we grow our company, we don't grow into the hairball that, that is waiting for us out there. And, and yeah, sort of. And for a long time, I thought, you know, you have to have a certain amount of complexity before, you know, our style of removing complexity is, is economic and helpful. But now I'm, I'm coming around. At, at first, I thought I could almost justify it down at the size of our own company. You know, we're 30 people. And by the way, this is embarrassing to say, we have 20 applications, <laughs> 20 databases, 20 ridiculous schemas, 20 things that I hate every day. Um, and we are, you know, we're, we're on this journey right now to redo what we're doing. Interestingly, on part of that journey, I realized, and this is, here's a weird side note. So I came up through the ranks through... Anderson Consulting, which was Arthur Anderson, which is an accounting firm. And in my, in my youth, uh, I built and or implemented packaged a lot of accounting systems and built custom accounting systems. I know accounting really pretty well. And I just noticed recently that in the, in the 20 years, we've 21 years, 22 years now that we've been semantic arts, we haven't done an accounting system. Nobody wants their accounting system to be touched, I don't think. I, I think they think it's a solved problem. It's, it is solved, but not very well. And I think they don't want a little boutique firm like us messing with their you know, $100 million accounting system. But when I shone the light back down on ourselves and, and, and smaller professional service firms, I suddenly realized, oh, we ha yeah, accounting's right in the center of this. We have to solve accounting. And when I started digging into accounting and, you know, taking the semantic lens on accounting, it, it blew my mind. It, it, despite the fact that I've implemented, I don't know, a dozen accounting systems, I think I know this stuff pretty well. When you look at it really, really hard, all of a sudden it changes and you realize some new things. And I have, just to make sure I'm not crazy, I'm, I decided I'm going to write a book. I'm going to capture everything I'm doing. So that's the book I'm working on right now. And we're going to build into the system. And I've got an accounting professor as my co-author. So to keep me honest here, in case I do something that's not generally accepted accounting principles. Um, but then here's where I'm going to finally eventually answer your question. I've really, over the last two months, I've really been grappling with, with I, I call it turning the compost heap, but all these ideas we've had. And one of them being, I thought for sure that, that accounting as we were going to re-implement it, is capturing the business events, which you're already doing if you're data-centric. So any business event that's going to give rise to an accounting transaction is, is already captured. But the trick is, how do you know what accounts to post it to, how to value it, how to, all, you know, all those things that you do as an accountant, as a bookkeeper, or as a, as a source system, as a, as a sub-ledger, as, as the accountants call it. So I thought I was going to have to have a rule language or maybe a domain-specific language of accounting policy. In other words, I was going to turn those giant manuals that they all had. You know, everybody's got their accounting policy and why we do this and that. I was going to turn that into rules. But the, long, the more times I turned this compost heap and looked at more examples and stuff, it just started getting simpler and simpler in a pretty interesting way. Until literally last Wednesday... My daughter calls me up and she, and she uh, works for a nonprofit as a grant writer, but has a consulting business on the side where she consults for nonprofits. And she has a very rickety accounting system that she built in Excel and said, you know, I think I need some help with this. It's not making any sense. And I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I thought, and she didn't want to go to QuickBooks. I don't blame her. Yeah. Um, so, so I said, well, wait, I got an idea here. This stuff I've been working on, I think I could simplify one more simplification and, and handle something like, like your situation. 
And sure, and sure enough, I built this pretty slick little thing in Excel where her accounting policy is just a table. And in fact, it's a table 11 by three. It's not even a big table. She puts all her transactions in and it just generates the profit and loss balance sheet. She, she reconciled it to her checking account and her credit cards, things all that. And you can just cut and paste if you want to have a different accounting policy. So she, you know, this is a classic accrual accounting, you know, where you recognize revenue when you invoice it and you recognize uh, expenses when you've been billed. That's a very traditional, but how about the, how about a cash based for, for tax purpose? You just literally copy and paste the new accounting policy, which is all it's data. So there's no rules. Just paste that in. And all of a sudden, all of our transactions are now recast. Here's what it looks like cash based. Hmm. Anyway. So yeah. there's a long way of saying now I'm starting to think you could go all the way to the smallest of small. You know, that's a part-time business. Well, and so we talked about the, the challenge that I keep seeing of, evolving the application model. But mm-hmm. when you think about what, what you're talking about, how, if you have a change in your data model or the data that you need, right? What What is happening? What are those business events? What is the, the change in the semantics, the context of those business events? How are you working to share this data mm-hmm. internally with, you know, the, the consumers, like how, how are you finding that process? Yeah. And you know, you, you hinted that you were going to ask a question like that in the, in in the intro and it caused me to remember something. This is something we used to do 10 or 12 years ago now. And I have, I haven't done it for ages and you're reminding me that it's timely. I should bring it back. And too bad this is not visual, but I'm going to describe something and you have to visualize it in your head. So imagine a triangle with its base on the ground and its pointy thing up. And then another triangle upside down with its base at the top. And you bring it down to where they overlap a little bit. So these two triangles will overlap. There'll be a little diamond where they overlap. You got that as a, as a mental image. So we used to say stuff at the bottom of the, of the lower triangle is the, is the producer's ontology, if you will, or schema. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of stuff at the bottom of, of how data is sourced and described, but it eventually maps back up to this one diamond. And then at the top of the other triangle is the consumer's ontology. So they, and they want to mix and match things all kinds of different ways, but it also ties just down to the diamond in the middle. And if you can get this just right, the diamond can be fairly small and still cover all the variations at the bottom and all the variation you want at the top. And there, then what happens is if somebody, you know, changes the application schema down at the bottom, it's on them to remap it. If they actually introduce a new concept to the enterprise, okay. And you go to the council and say, you know, we've, we've discovered, I don't know what we've discovered, the 118th element in the periodic table. Would you please add it in or something, you know, but, but there's, there's not a huge amount of churn in the middle because it's been very carefully thought through. And it's, and it's what, what uh, somebody once called the enduring business themes. There are things that just don't change very often that, that you really can uh, root your whole uh, enterprise around. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the secret. I think I'm going to dig that graphic back out and start using it again. We, you know, we used to, used a long time ago and I totally forgot about it until today. And how do you think that maps with data mesh? Because I, I kind of think data mesh would say, you know what? Uh, pull that producer or that consumer triangle further down and you're going to have a much bigger diamond because we're, we're going to think about how to, you know, the producers have to expose data in a way that the consumers can consume it, but there isn't a specific use case in mind, at least for the producer aligned data products. It's about sharing data 
so that it can be consumed, not so that it is consumed with this use case in mind. So how, how would you think about that kind of that overlap and how that works with this? Because I kind of see this as being, I mean, one thing that I keep trying to very, very strongly stress with data mesh is consumers don't want things to change. That has to change. If, <laughs> if, if you, ha- you have to evolve your business, which means your the way you express what is happening with your business to data consumers, so your data model will also have to evolve. So you don't want your application model willy-nilly breaking your, your data right. model, yeah. but you also have to evolve that data model and that consumers have to get used to that. So again, I have this problem of, of adding way too much context into one specific <laughs> question, but like, how do you think about talking to people in that? And, and are any of the, the people that you're working with um, looking at data mesh or, or trying to do data mesh as well when you're, you're talking about the data centric yeah. side? Um, we haven't seen it in our clients yet. Um, uh, we hear it a little bit. We haven't, we haven't, it, you know, it just depends on who you have for clients. I'm sure the the more leading edge, we're kind of at the, at the, you know, in financial services and pharmaceuticals and stuff, you know, I'm sure the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks of the world are probably doing this stuff. We haven't seen it yet, but I'm, and it's coming obviously. What, it, what I find interesting um, and I'm not opposed to data mesh, you know, there's some very good ideas in there and stuff, but, but every one of these data fads that's come along in the last 30 years could so much have benefited from, from a little bit of semantics. And yet they chose, they just willingly chose to completely ignore it. And it was pretty much the downfall. I mean, I sort of suggested that originally with object oriented when we got started, you know, data warehousing, they had some great principles in there originally, um, we, we went to a client, we'll have a healthcare client once, and they said they had 6,000 tables in their data warehouse with patient data in them. And we went, you know, if you have patient data in 6,000 tables, there's no way in the world you're ever going to know what's happening with your patients. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's absurd, you know, and saying, and then, you know, service oriented architecture comes along and, you know, we were helping some clients at that point. Say, if you had a semantic model of, of what was shared in your enterprise and you made everyone who used the enterprise service bus adhere to that shared model, you actually could have plug and play and the whole thing would really work. But that's no, that's not what everybody did. Everybody had APIs and I'm just going to put my API on the bus and you have to consume my API the way I defined it. And pretty soon it was just point to point over a bus and throw that away. Then, you know, next thing to come along is data lakes. Everybody says, oh, co location is the solution or a problem. Just don't do extract, transform, load. Do extract, load, and maybe occasionally later do some transform, which, of course, they didn't do. In it goes. No semantics, just a bunch of junk. Everybody's reacting to that. Data fabric was sort of the answer to that, but it's just a, you know, there's no, rarely any thinking about what things mean. Data catalogs are coming along now, but same problem. Not There's not a, a, a shared model. And and mesh at least hints there's there's, what are they? They have a thing. They say, you know, behind the curtain, there's going to be this universal interoperability layer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. That's what we're talking about. Why don't you start with that instead of you know, decentralized, you know, those, those inverted triangles I was talking about? I think you'll have one per domain, but you don't need, there's no need to. There's, there's knowable shared stuff. I think that the pushback to that, I mean, I would say that, um, Jamak has talked about knowledge graphs and semantics and stuff all, quite a bit. So um, she's she's very much aligned to that. But what a lot of what you're talking about um, is a centralization of concepts, yeah. even if it's not a centralization of applications. And centralization can limit agility and scalability. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. how, how are you finding those the, that tension there? Because uh, again, what, what you're talking about makes sense if the business is not necessarily evolving overly quick, but in today's world, 
<laughs> things are changing quite quickly and, and, you know, or you buy a new company or you go into a new, um, you go into a new line of business. And like, I mean, a lot of the companies that you talk about, the pharma and, and financial services are actually the ones that are embracing data mesh. The, the tech giants aren't because they don't have the same scalability and agility challenges. So it, it is the traditional companies that you think of as kind of the sleepier companies that are, mm-hmm. are really trying to figure out where to go, but aren't uh, moving as fast as some of the others. But um, so like, how do you find that centralization and not make it a bottleneck? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. What, what we've done with most of our clients, maybe all of them, I'm just trying to think here, is, you know, we don't start at the center. We start somewhere at, at, at the edge, but postulate what the center looks like. And, you know, here, here's the, the shared model for the enterprise, or at least enough of it that, that you're going to be future-proofed. Um, and, and one of our clients who's, who's done the most masterful job with this has coached us to not even use the word data governance. Because as soon as you use the word data governance, the data governance police, who is that's the centralized thing, will show up and say, we'll take it from here. And you're absolutely right. You can you can stifle uh, growth by doing that. So we call this this thing in the middle or they, they our client calls it the consortium. <laughs> it's a very it's a volunteer organization and you have to have skin in the game. And um, and if you do, you get to share. And the, and the sharing is quite profound because. You know, think about this. Pretty much every domain in a in a domain driven thing has the firm's employees somehow in the domain. They always show they, they show up all over the place. They don't just show up at HR. I mean, they're in HR and they're in payroll, but but they're in compliance and they're in legal and they're in anti money laundering and they're in you know drug discovery. And you know, why don't you just do that once and share it? Not just share the concepts, but you, you know the data is now shareable. Yeah, and so like specifically when we're talking about this, how much extra work is there to sharing the the data? I mean, is, is it already that it's modeled and that you just are sharing it at the same time for people, or are you doing a lot mm-hmm. more of preparation to then make it so that those consumers can use the data? The, the actual sharing, you know, once you've, you know, turned your source data into, into a graph, into a triple store, the, there's no further transformation need to be done. The, the data is just those, those nodes and edges and, 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 you know, they're globally unique identifiers. So you can consume it exactly as is. And it has, you know, all of its typing and everything else is attached to it, so you know what it is. Many consumers, though, will will want to recombine it or or ag, you know aggregate things and all that, which is fine. But but the consumption of the actual data requires no more. Maybe you might want to move it, but that's just a, you know, literally moving it. But maybe you leave it where it is and just query it on a federated basis. So I mean. I guess if the application developers are not loving the fact that they've got to move to a graph, are the consumers, are you finding that the data consumers are happy to be consuming from a graph? Because this has been one of the, the big challenges around data mesh is even just getting the producers and consumers in the same room to say Mm -hmm. like, Hey, consumers, what do you want? And how do you actually want this? Hey, producers, this is, you know, like getting them talking even the same language or even in the same room at all. Like I've talked to multiple companies where they're a large company and literally for very crucial things, their data consumers and their data producers have never talked. They are only going through data engineering. Yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, we're finding that consumers, what what they love is is the the kind of connectivity you get from a graph of bringing many sources 
you know, together nicely. The, the embarrassing thing is, you know, for the most part, up to now, the the presentation of that has been incredibly crude. Um, you know, we're st- we're still showing them things in tables, or we have these very simple DBpedia like you know follow your nose things or force directed graphs, which frankly are horrible. You know, we're just starting to work on some slightly bespoke, um, sensible ways of presenting things to people. And I think as that matures, um, people are going to really get it a lot, a lot better. Yeah, I think that UX, um, throughout all of data consumption, UX has just been or for anybody who doesn't know user experience, uh, UX has been so, so, so neglected <laughs> for yep. every aspect. Yep. yep. It's yep. just, and, and I mean, you know, uh, a lot of people in data mesh talk about that uh, data is just system exhaust from uh, a typical application model. And so, um, so how do you think about knowledge graphs also intersecting with this because you know there's the actual underlying technology it sounds like that you're think, saying this should be in a, in a graph but mm-hmm. how do you think about knowledge graphs and that user experience kind of coming in and, you know data mesh has this experience plane where every data product you shouldn't have a different experience for every single data product that you're trying to um, consume from because that's just a horrible thing to learn mm-hmm. 500 different UXs right. for data products. So like, right. h- how do you think about user experience? And, and, and then maybe as well, how do we start to think about that for the application developer side for something like right. this? Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, we've been doing some experiments with that on a, in a, with a very small company, a company that called Industry Building Blocks that sells data for a living and they have this incredibly interesting set of data that that no one else in the world has of very low level um, detail of of very tiny sub industries and who exactly is competing and what are the brands and what's their relative market share and all that kind of stuff but it's all in spreadsheets and pdfs and you can't actually get your head around what is this? So we turned it into a graph and that was pretty cool as a starter. And we just started building some bespoke UI that we, we think is pretty interesting and, and intuitive for this. And the main issue there is it just all of a sudden um, brings to life what this data really is. Um, and, you know, very soon there'll be some, some demos available. It, it's going to be at industry knowledge graph or I guess it's industrykg.com, but um, they aren't quite there yet. You get sort of an idea. And, and what we're trying to do is is in between, you know, most people, once you build a graph database, the next thing to do is to have a force-directed graph with thousands of nodes and, you know, clustering and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, see, there's your data. <laughs> you just go, God, no, that doesn't help, actually. It looks cool, but that's, that's not helpful. I, I want you know, somebody to have distilled down to what I can get in my head at any one point in time, but then allow me to, to move around sensibly. And, and I think we've done that a bit. I think, you know, lots more work needs to be done in this area. I think that's the probably one of the areas where the most amount of work needs to be done. And, and so circling back on that about the application developers, like, you know, it's what I found is application developers are very, very willing to uh, learn new things if that new thing then um, accelerates their ability to do their job. And this is kind of, you know, data centric application development would be doing, would be kind of rearranging the way that they do their job. So is there something on the UX side that is missing where be, I'm, I'm finding this around data mesh is we're, we're telling application teams that they have to share their data. And then we try and give them data engineering created tools and tools that, you know, you don't want to put a YAML 
in front of a freaking application <laughs> developer, they will tell you to go pound sand. Right. So like, yep. how do we think about creating, like what, what have you found that really works to get application developers to rethink the way their, their relationship with data? Yeah, I would have to say that we've only been successful in that in a few very small, you know, and it's, and it's almost in an apprenticeship model. I, I, I haven't flipped the switch yet to say this would bring them around. It, I think it exists. I just don't know what it is. Bente Bush um, from NAV on one of our episodes talked about, you know, what they are doing when they're going to be on, uh, again, a future episode that the NAV folks build in the platform, what they found worked was to actually have one, the, the application developers, like try and pull a couple of those people into creating the platform mm-hmm. for enabling this. And that um, as well, that they're the, you don't just have, data engineering folks building the platform to enable application developers to use this. You have people who are very, very used to the workflows of the application developers to make sure that that's dug in. But I didn't know if you've seen something that's that's worked around that. Are, are you finding that with data-centric application development, it's platform-driven, that you really have people building platforms to enable their application engineers or how do you do that data literacy like all of that Mm -hmm. it it will be platform driven it's it's kind of early days right i mean there are platforms but they're pretty crappy yeah yeah that's that's kind of data mesh side as well uh there are some companies that have built some pretty interesting platform stuff but a lot of it's just just enable some capabilities (laughs) like make this exactly Make it so that it's manual and give them a, a better user experience. So, yeah. um, so we've covered a whole lot of, of really interesting things here. Um, is there anything that you think that we should have covered, uh, especially about kind of overlap between data centric and, and data mesh? Because if data mesh is about sharing your domain's data with consumers in such a way that they can use it, you know, how do you think that overlap might work or, or how is there anything that we didn't cover that you think that there's that these two things mesh well or they don't <laughs> mesh that's good yeah. yeah mesh well yeah um you know i think i think they sort of mesh at the at the universal interoperability layer mm-hmm. you know cuz so so it's almost as if <clears throat> data mesh is starting at the bottom kind of kind of going up and dividing and conquering as a strategy to get something done, which, you know, I get it. We're kind of starting from the top. And, and I recognize that the, the allergy that everybody has to that, because most, you know, enterprise data modeling was a disaster, you know, because, yeah. it, but <clears throat> I think we've, we found something that pretty much works and it has the benefit of future proofing what you're doing. And I think it future proofs data mesh or data, fabric or you know pretty much any anything that you want to do right now it's once you sort of see what the end game looks like you kind of know oh yeah if i just change my behavior a little bit i'm now future proof i'm not gonna have you know connect my domains together because they're already connected yeah well if if you were to tell somebody like why they should really consider this what would be your your kind of lightweight pitch on why they should really consider data-centric application development? You know, it. I think it comes down to simplicity and flexibility, which is the absolute opposite of what people have right now. You know, as I, as I mentioned, any one application is already 10 times to 100 times more complicated than it needs to be and is completely rigid. <coughs> And, 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 and your system integration architecture is even more rigid than the apps. You know, every, everything you change an app, you got even more work to do with the system integration. So, so this, this future is a place where the actual model of your information is simple enough that a, that a motivated analyst could learn it over the weekend, could learn the entire enterprise over the weekend, and 
you know, a, 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 an application developer can learn, you know, how is what I'm doing fitting in. Yeah. You've got that full picture as to why, why what I'm doing matters and all that stuff instead yeah. of yeah. Uh, thinking of you as part of the whole, instead of just uh, somebody doing, you know, uh, a very specific role. So yeah. I really, I really like a lot of, of what you said here. It's going to take me a while to kind of process it. <laughs> um, so, Dave, this has been very, very helpful. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want them reaching out to you about? You know, you've got a book, you've got a couple of different uh, conferences, you've got, a, you know, an in-person conference coming up. So like, yeah, well, people are interested in learning more. How do yep. they come find you and, and what should they sure. do to further their learning? Sure. Well, the easy start is semanticarts.com. That's our website, obviously. And as you suggested, we've got, uh, you know, we started um, thinking about this this idea that, that you will need a different architecture, I guess the platform, as you would call it, to enable data-centric. Um, and because there's a handful of things that we used to rely on the fact that we had application programmers doing that if you move to this data-centric approach, you now have to s essentially solve with data or, or shared architecture. Things like you know, fine-grained authorization and validation and entity resolution and, and you know, those those things that we always did by hand in application code <clears throat> now need to move to the architecture. So we started talking about this seven or eight years ago, maybe in, up in Estes Park and Rocky Mountain National Park. So we called our little group the Estes Park Group, and it gradually became this uh, annual forum that we have called the Data-Centric Architecture Forum. And we had been holding it in person. Last year, we did it fully virtual. This year, we've split it into a virtual part, which is coming up late February, early March, which is mostly case studies and why you, should, why you want to do this. And then we've pushed the in-person thing out. Hopefully, we're going to get out of this pandemic. This, this third, maybe the third wave is the last, who knows? But we've pushed it to late May, early June. It'll be in person in Fort Collins, mostly uh, practitioners, you know, either either software vendors who have something to add or enterprise architects who you know are getting ready to, to do this kind of thing. So that'd be kind of a, a cool thing to keep your eyes on and, and perhaps participate in. Um, and yeah, I've written a couple of books that are kind of interesting. And I'll drop links to all that in the show notes. But if, if uh, are you, is the best way to also get directly in contact with you just through the website or through yeah. uh, LinkedIn or anything like that? Or yeah, yeah. Uh, the website has a contact us that goes to me and our ad and my admin. Um, uh, you know, LinkedIn is I don't even <laughs> I guess it's Dave McComb. I don't know. You know, I'll I'll, I'll drop links. In the show hard, notes. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I should know these things, but yeah, you're you're more focused on trying to revolutionize the the way people are, are treating their application and data. So, um, well, again, Dave, thank you so much for this, and thanks everyone for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Dave McComb, the president and co-founder of Semantic Arts. As previously mentioned, the first three listeners who fill out a contact us on their website and mention Data Mesh Radio will get a free copy of Dave's book on data-centric application design. So go ahead and check that out in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month -month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, 
you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. 